The Advent readings have a, a rhythm to them. Uh, one year they accent the first coming of Jesus, and the next year they um, highlight his second coming. This year we've been reading passages that have primarily to do with his second coming, and we've been working with the idea of the power that's implicit in that. And that if there's ever going to be a way, a manner, a time in which this world is put to rights, that is obviously going to take enormous power. But not just power, as this morning we're reminded in the fourth candle of love, but this has to be a power that has as its motivation love. And so this morning we're going to focus on the Romans passage and look at how um, a thought of the love that resides behind the power or that motivates and animates the power is the basis for hope and for any kind of self-identity. All kinds of um, alternatives are put before us all the time for having a self-identity. For instance, in one of Tom Wright's books, he, he says, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like that which you worship. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and then increasingly treat others as creditors, debtors, partners, and customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, and their past histories, and then increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and then treat other people as either collaborators or competitors or pawns in their game. And these things do damage to the, the image-bearing quality of the people who have them and to those whose lives they touch. My friend David Kinneman is now president of Barna Research, and they just did a new study that showed, this is um, sort of studying all Americans, that when it comes to how one finds their identity, 91%, I mean, that's a stunning figure, 91% of Americans would say that the best way to find yourself is by looking within. 86% say that the path to happiness is pursuing the things that you desire. But we have in front of us, and I ask you to open yourself, uh, to open your liturgy to it, we have in front of us, though, this text from Romans, where Paul seems to be operating out of a completely different worldview. And that for him, the key to discovering his self was to know the risen Christ. That his self-understanding was that the gospel about Christ makes me who I am. I am a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Well, just contrast that again for a moment with today's bent towards what's called identity politics. Have you heard that phrase? wherein one is defined and we're increasingly told that you should be defined by your race or your gender or your ethnicity or your disability or your religion or your culture or your sexual identity. But Paul wants to say, no, there's something that transcends all of that and that his whole personal identity was shaped by his commitment to and devotion to Jesus Christ. So Paul, of course, would not deny Race, gender, these kind of things are obvious. Ethnicity, they're obvious. 
But what Paul wants to say is that they're secondary and that these are identities that are precisely set aside for that which is ultimately definitive in human life. You know that famous passage in Philippians 3, I can't read the whole thing to you, but remember Paul says something like, you know, compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, and then listen to these words, as my master. Now you just think with me for a moment. My sexual preferences are not my master. My sense of money, having a lot or little, okay, but it is not my master. So Paul says, compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as my master, then everything I once thought I had going for me in my pedigree, I now see as insignificant, like dog done. I've dumped it all in the trash, Paul says. Now, if you're thinking at all or feeling at all, it raises the question, why? Why, Paul? Why would someone do that? And there's these very important little two words, this little logical connective, so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. But as long as I held in my hands the kinds of things that are foisted on us today by identity politics, gender, race, ethnicity, disability, sexual preference, as long as those things occupied my hands and arms, I could not embrace Christ or be embraced by him. So I had to let them go. Not as unimportant, not as not true, but just secondary. And what's primary to me, Paul says, is that I am a servant of Christ. Now, probably most of you would know, and again, I don't have time to read them all to you, but in a part of Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians especially, is dominated by Paul um, with great words, you know, mountains and mountains of words, that's why I can't read them all to you, expressing his heart about what it means to be a servant. When he says this then, I'm just going to summarize here, 2 Corinthians 4 and 6 and 11, this then is how you ought to regard me as a servant of Christ. And this happens in great endurance and troubles and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and riots and hard work and sleepless nights and hunger, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. And besides everything else, he says, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. So again, if we're thinking at all, it raises the question, why and how would anyone do this? How does one, I mean, just, I want you to think with me for a moment. How does one come to the centered, solid inter, inner position in themselves to do what Joseph did, to just have a dream and do what he did, or to live as Paul has lived? And I want to suggest this morning that it comes from knowing the love of God that animates and motivates and, whoa, focuses his power. If you're listening on tape, I bumped the candle. Um, it's knowing this power, but not just the power, because naked power is, in a sense, nothing. Power only has a thing to it when it's animated by something. So what is the love of God? Well, you've probably heard the term agape your whole life. And it just simply means to say that God's love, the quality of his love, is the highest form of love. 
And of course, the, the picture in the New Testament is that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And then, you know, attached to that is this notion of he loves us unconditionally, that there's nothing, no circumstance that can ever separate us from the positive, active love of God in our lives. This is the kind of thing the psalmist celebrates. For instance, Psalm 86, you, O Lord, abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, tries to help us understand this by saying, our heavenly father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. And I want you to picture God this morning as having fondness, endearment, generous affection towards all of his creatures, and that this is the natural outflow of who he is to the core. God doesn't love the way we sometimes love as Christians, right? Do you know what I mean if I say, in quotes, Christian love? What do I mean by, in quotes, Christian love? It means I think you're an idiot, but I know I'm supposed to love you, so I love you in Christian love, right? <laughs> and I think we sometimes then project that onto God, but that is not God's kind of love. The kind of love that the scriptures try to um, describe and that human beings have felt for 2,000 years is the natural outflow of who God is in his core. And we try to capture it with this word that seems tired and worn out, but it's indispensable. What else are we going to do besides talk about love? Well, this love then is what animates this explosive power of God. <laughs> um, our forebearers and uh, the Jews had a word for this, El Shaddai. And it meant the most strong, the God Almighty. You know, there's no power in all the universe, personal or otherwise, that is more than God's. And the reason this is important is not just for theological purity. It's not just for having an adequate theology, per se. It's to know in your daily life that God is capable of doing all the right things he desires. Right? If God doesn't have capacity, then what is hope when you're sick? What is hope when your company lays you off? What is hope when a loved one dies, if God doesn't have capacity. And this is what the Hebrews were celebrating in this notion of El Shaddai. And for Paul, he would just wanna say that this is meant to be an experiential reality. So remember the passage in Corinthians where Paul said, look, my message and my preaching were a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And then you have that lovely little logic, logical connective again, so that. Why, Paul? Why was it so important to you that everybody knew that what they experienced by you was the power of God expressed through the Spirit of God? Paul says, because I want your faith to rest not on my wisdom, but precisely on the power of God. Well, of course, the all-time proof of God's power is the resurrection. So if the all-time proof of God's love is that he gave his son to die for us, the all-time proof of his power is that no other person in the history of humanity has raised from the dead. And so conquering death, Jesus is raising from the dead, is the all-time proof for anybody who has an open mind of God's power. So again, the psalmists celebrate these things. For instance, Psalm 136, God's power is a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And now catch this, four. His steadfast love endures forever. 
It's his steadfast love that moves his hand and outstretches his arm, right? Nobody moves their hand or stretches out an arm without a reason. So if you say, well, God, what moves your strong hand? What moves your strong arms? It's his steadfast love towards us forever. Well, when we don't have an identity based upon the love and power of God, it then naturally follows that I must protect myself. I must secure myself. I must provide for myself. And thus, I must fight others for this world's limited resources. I must. For I must protect myself. I must secure myself. I must provide for myself. You divorce yourself from the power of God animated by his love, and all that will be left is yourself. And this is the brilliance of the scriptures. When James writes, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? You know, just get out your phone, look at your newsfeed, and then overlay that James question. Where do these appalling wars come from? And murders within families. A son murdering a father. A father murdering his children. Where do these things come from? They don't come from out of the blue. And there's not a scientific answer to it. Brain theory will never answer this question, as important as it is. Social science will never answer this question, as important as it is. Because while all that gets included in the reasons, the scriptures want to say to us that these appalling wars and these quarrels come about because you want your own way and you fight for it from a place that is very deep within yourself. You want what isn't yours, James says, and are willing to risk violence and killing to get your hands on it. You wanna know what's happening in Aleppo? Somebody wants something bad enough to indiscriminately kill other human beings. It's not geopolitics at bottom. It's not even ethnic at bottom. It's not even religious, Shia or Sunni, at bottom. At bottom is, somebody wants something so bad and is so disconnected from the one who could give it to them, so disconnected from the personal, loving power of God that they have nothing left available to them except for amassing and using against others human and material power. This is why for many historians and sociologists that humankind took a deep turn downward and some would argue that we've not yet recovered from in World War I. When we took all the assets of the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment and turned it on each other, killing millions and millions and millions of people, animated out of this deep insecurity that is separated from the love and power of God, Many, many smart people would say we have not recovered from that yet in almost now 100 years. And this, this thing exists in friendships and families and the workplace. But Advent offers us an alternative. Every year it says to us, something good has been promised. And we know this in our minds that a powerful God loves us 
and that he's doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, that he is saving the world. But the truth of it is, in my heart, in this room, there are aches and laments, protests. It seems that no one can actually really protect us from fear and exploitation and suspicion. Not doctors or lawyers or engineers or scientists or politicians or the police. Bad things keep happening. The good powers, I'm happy for engineers. Where's my friend Roger? I'm really happy for aerospace engineers. You know, somebody who gets on airplanes almost every week, I'm super happy that someone understands all that stuff. Right? So this isn't a mocking of science or engineers or any of that. It's just simply to say, in spite of all the best efforts of doctors and lawyers and engineers and scientists, politicians and police, really bad things keep happening. What do we do? Well, our readings this morning invite us into a story that makes sense of all this, that there will be a child named Emmanuel, God with us. He was announced by Isaiah to Ahaz and to the house of David, saying that this child, this God is with us child, was then foretold to Joseph in a dream that this child who is born of the flesh will die and be resurrected from the dead. And it's precisely this child, come on, like a professor here. Think with me here. (laughs) It's this child prophesied by Isaiah, assured in Joseph's heart by a dream. It's this child that confronts Paul and says, Paul, your identity is going to completely change. And then Paul then just turns to the Romans as he's writing this letter and says, it's also this child that calls the Christians in Rome and to us into the same plot, into this new birth, being declared the child of God, living in this wonderful Pauline phrase, in the obedience of faith, dying and rising again in Christ. So as we come to our quiet moment uh, this morning, Instead of maybe bowing your head or closing your eyes, I invite you to look at our Advent candles to reflect for a moment on the candles themselves. Hope, peace, joy, love. And I want you to reflect on the last month, to reflect on your personal Advent. And ask yourself this morning, what is it that you need? Hope, joy, peace, or love? What has the Spirit been doing in your heart and mind over this Advent season? Hope, joy, peace, love. And now if you want, you may close your eyes and just begin to wonder, the Spirit assisting you, to wonder which one of these words would assist you right now to follow Jesus? Do you need hope? You need peace to medicate anxiety. Maybe joy to help you overcome some downness. Do you need to reconnect afresh this morning with the love of God? Hope, peace, joy, love. Which of these is the Spirit using to assist you right now this morning to follow Jesus? Jesus.